0: The call to worship this morning comes from Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1, right after the Psalms, beginning in verse 20. God calls us to worship. Wisdom calls aloud in the street. She raises her voice in the public squares. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. In the gateways of the city, she makes her speech. How long will you simple ones love your simple ways? How long will mockers delight in mockery and fools hate knowledge. If you had responded to my rebuke, I would have poured out my heart to you and made my thoughts known to you. But since you rejected me when I called and no one gave heed when I stretched out my hand, since you ignored all my advice and would not accept my rebuke, I in turn will laugh at your disaster. I will mock when calamity overtakes you, when calamity overtakes you like a storm, when disaster sweeps over you like a whirlwind, when distress And trouble overwhelm you. Then they will call to me, but I will not answer. They will look for me, but will not find me. Since they hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord, since they would not accept my advice and spurn my rebuke, they will eat the fruit of their ways and be filled with the fruit of their schemes. For the waywardness of the simple will kill them and the complacency of fools will destroy them. Whoever listens to me will live in safety and be at ease without fear or harm. Let's sing God's praises from hymn number 20. Our scripture reading is from Deuteronomy chapter 30. As we continue in our series of the Garden of God, Deuteronomy chapter 30, beginning in verse 11. God speaks to us through Moses. Now, what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven so that you have to ask who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it. Nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so you may obey it. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction, For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, and to keep His commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away, and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day... I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to His voice and hold fast to Him. For the Lord is your life and He will give you many years in the land He swore to give your fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob." There are few passages in our Bible which are simultaneously well-known and radically unknown as the story of the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. Everyone knows about eating the apple, right? No, there is no mention of the apple in the garden. Certainly, the tree of knowledge of good and evil could not have been an apple. Well, apples are good for you, right? An apple of day keeps the doctor away. There is so much rich theology in Genesis 3 And it's all packed so tightly that it's a shame that so few people really meditate on the fall of Adam and Eve. While our culture tailors the story for their cute explanation for life, Christians in our day tend toward two extremes. Either they use the story to speculate on questions that are foreign to the Bible, like why snakes crawl and don't have legs, or... Christians ignore the story of the fall because they believe the situation Adam and Eve faced here is irrelevant to their life today. Supposedly, Adam and Eve lived by a covenant of works and now we live in the covenant of grace. And of course, that theological distinction means don't look at this because God did away with this particular relationship and started something new at the end of Genesis 3. Well, I don't believe that. And I'd be willing to bet that the story of the fall is repeated in one shape or form, one way or another, in every book of our Bible at some level. And we'll see a few ways that the story relates to the rest of Scripture today, but there is no way to possibly draw out all the, all the connections here in one sermon. I mean, maybe a year's worth of sermons. Maybe you could actually do that and show the connections between Genesis 3 and the other places in Scripture. And I'm just going to go to a few of them today, which I think are the most important, but there are they are legions. In fact, really what you have here in Genesis 3 is sort of an outline of the entire rest of the Bible because the story of Genesis 3 is really, in miniature, the, the rest of the Bible. It's everywhere. But it's one of those things where I looked at this chapter and I said, you know, maybe we can do this all in one chapter or all in one week. At the beginning of the week, I was looking at it and that kind of went by the wayside. There's just so much packed in here with literature and everything. So now I thought well, maybe we can split it in two weeks that didn't work either. And so I'm down to the first six verses. But what I want to impress upon you is this is literature and it's very, very potent stuff. And so I figure since we're not in a hurry to get through this, we'll just take it as it comes. And what I want to, I want to read something from probably one of my favorite theologians, um, 19th century theologians, Milton Terry, who had this to say about Genesis 3 and the entire account of the fall of Adam and Eve. Uh, In his book, he says, The inspired character of the narrative is to me evinced by the fact that all the literature of the world has failed to set forth for human warning any sketch of the course of temptation which is comparable in insight to this most ancient allegory. The effect of a prohibition in producing in man's free will a tendency to disobedience, the peril of tampering with temptation... And lingering curiously in its vicinity, the promptings of concupiscence reinforced by the whisperings of doubt, the genesis of sin, its a great phrase, the genesis of sin from the thought to the wish, from the wish to the purpose, from the purpose to the act, from the act to the repetition, to the habit, to the character, to the necessity, to the temptation of others the thrilling intensity of reaction in the sense of fear, shame, and of innocence lost forever, the certain and natural incidence of retribution, the beginning of a new life of sorrow and humiliation, the working of deathful consequences with all the inevitable certainty of a natural law, all this and the awful truth that death is the wages of sin and the fruit of sin and that death is sin has been set forth since then by all the loftiest literature of the world. Yet all the literature of the world, even when it speaks to the genius of a Dante and a Milton, has added and can add nothing essential to the primeval story of Genesis, which it can but illustrate and expand. And I might quibble with the idea of this as being an allegory. Uh, Milton Terry used the word allegory, but I believe there is actually history here, and I think he did too in a certain way. But his point is that there is far more than history here. And I believe this chapter offers us the archetype of the human condition. In fact, this chapter is the outline, like I said, in miniature of the entire story of the Bible. So let's pick up our story in Genesis 2.25, the last verse, going through Genesis 3, verse 6. Picking up right after the creation of, of woman. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Remember the development of the story here from Genesis chapter 2. You remember that I've emphasized the progress of God's grace to Adam. God gave Adam a garden to work, animals to name, and declared that it was not good for man to be alone. And so God went to work again and made the woman. He put Adam into a deep sleep and made the woman from his side, which, of course, was the very best gift of grace up until that point. Then we are told here that both Adam and Eve were naked but felt no shame. And commentators look at this and they tend to say that what we have here is this picture of innocence in that they are naked and they feel no shame. And I think that that there is an element of innocence there. But I think if you put this into the story that I've been trying to lay out in the progress of the garden and what God is doing and progressing to give more grace through the entire story, what I see here is a little bit different, which includes innocence, but is much more than innocence. I believe that there is in this This image of nakedness with no shame I would suggest is a visual symbolism of immaturity to this point. Naked without shame is more like a baby or a young child. Think of these as God's new children. And How do babies come into this world? They come into this world naked and they have no shame. Little kids have no problem running around naked. That's a result of their immaturity. In a sense, you could say that's innocence, but I think that the immaturity is the, the real key here that is being presented in this story. Then along comes the serpent who we are told is more crafty than any of the wild animals God had made. Do you see the playoff here? You have the immature and then you have the crafty serpent showing up on the scene. The Hebrew word for crafty does not carry any inherently negative connotation. In fact, it actually can be used as wisdom or skill. The serpent was very skillful and there's nothing negative about that inherently because remember Jesus is the one who said he actually used an image in his teaching that he told his disciples to be what? Wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Where do you think he got that from? He got that from right here. Now the serpent was wise but he was also dangerous and so Jesus changes the ending to be harmless as doves. But wise as serpent is a good thing. So the encounter in Genesis 3 is between Adam and Eve in their immaturity and a very skillful adversary. In other words, from the very setup, it's not a very optimistic scene. And I think there are shades here from the book of Proverbs, which has lots of warnings about being naive or being simple. That was really the danger that Adam and Eve were in in the situation. They were very immature in their innocence. They did not have very much experience. Now, the first question that the serpent asks is, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree of the garden? And how does the woman answer? We may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. So far, so good. But let me ask you a question. How did Eve know what God said? Was Eve around when God gave the command not to eat from that One tree? No, God told Adam that. And He told Adam that before Eve was created. So the very first response that Eve gave to the tempter, I believe, was a good response, and it came from her husband. At this point, she was listening to her husband. She had to have known about God's command from Adam, and up to this point, she believed and followed her husband's word and therefore understood God's word. Now there are a couple other details in this response that we have to, and context here that we need to make mention of. First of all is notice that she, Eve says that she can eat from all the other trees of the garden because that's what God told Adam, right? You are free to eat of all the trees but that one. Why is that important? Well, it means that she was not hungry, first of all. Eve was not hungry. And she was not in any danger of being hungry. Because remember, this is a temptation about food, right? Now, you'll see later why that's important. Also notice that Eve told the serpent something slightly different than God told Adam. God told Adam back in verse 16 and 17 of chapter 2, and the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. And yet Eve adds something else. And you must not touch it or you will die. So there's an addition there that Eve is adding. Did God tell Adam that he could not touch the fruit of the tree? Well, we don't have any record of God saying that. Now, at this point in the the text, a lot of theologians say, oh, she made a big mistake right there. She added to God's Word. And that's a very traditional view of this particular response that Eve makes. And there is some logic to that, so I'm not totally discounting that because we do know that the law says do not add or take away... From God's word, right? It is just as much a sin to add to God's word as it is to take away from God's word. But I don't think that, that applies in this case because the adding or taking away of God's word is condemned to when it nullifies God's word, when it actually becomes an excuse to disobey God. I'll give you an example of that? I'm not like I said. I'm not convinced of that view here. I think there's a little better way of looking at it. But uh, let me give you an example of, of an, an example of where in the Bible, when someone adds to God's word, it's actually designed to nullify or make void God's word. And that example comes from Matthew 15, where Jesus contempt, condemned the Pharisees for adding to God's word. Um, Jesus said, "Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, "Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death." But you say speaking of the Pharisees, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is a gift devoted to God. He is not to honor his Father with it. Thus you nullify the Word of God for the sake of your tradition. You see what's going on there? What Jesus is condemning the Pharisees for is for adding a loophole to get around obeying God. That would be adding and nullifying God's Word. But did Eve nullify God's word by saying they were not to touch the fruit? I don't think so. She's actually in conformity with God's word. Now, perhaps there's another explanation. Perhaps Adam and Eve had begun to learn something already. And that's manifested in what she says in response to the serpent. Remember, they were in schooling by God at this point. They were being taught various stages, being brought along. Maybe they had learned that what God doesn't want you to eat, He doesn't want you to touch. Think of the context of the law. Isn't that clear in the law of Moses? Moses told the people not to eat certain foods like pigs, right? And what they were not to eat, they were not to touch. I think that even Adam and Eve were learning that already. They were already learning something and being brought to maturity at this point when you have Eve in her first encounter with a serpent. Now, applying this lesson to the moral world, I believe that Eve had learned to not toy with sin. What you don't eat, you don't touch. I mean, what good does it do to avoid sin if you're playing with it all the time? It does no good because whoever starts playing with sin inevitably falls to sin, just like Adam and Eve did here in the garden. So I think that the first response of Eve was the right response within the context of the rest of the Bible. And let's continue in verse 4 and we'll see what the serpent says next. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, what kind of death did God promise Adam and Eve back in Genesis 2? I'll point out that if God's warning to Adam is about biological death and that they were going to die when they ate of it or in in that day, if it's about biological death, Then the serpent was was speaking the truth, and God was a liar, because they lived biologically. If you read the um, if you read the uh, genealogical accounting literally, they lived for nine hundred. Adam lived for nine hundred thirty years later, but God told them when they ate of it they would die. So right at the top here, I'll point out that if the death God warned Adam is biological death, and the serpent was telling the truth, and God was a liar for Adam and Eve did not die biologically when or in that day that they ate from the tree. And this is one of those reasons why I say I really believe that the death that God promised here at the center of this account was not biological death. It was actually a covenant death or a sin death. The separation from God actually happened immediately and we see the effects of that later in Genesis 3 and we'll get into that and what that all looks like. But notice how crafty the lying serpent really was. His statement implies that God was keeping the tree from them, right? This tree is really good, but God's keeping it from you. And I believe that, the, that God was keeping the tree for them when they were mature enough to handle it. In fact, I believe that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is part of God's original good creation. God made it for them. But what Eve was being tempted with was a shortcut. Not by God's order, not by God's timing, you can take it for yourself. And so the serpent's words were designed to cause the woman to doubt God's promise, to doubt God's care, and to doubt God's grace. Because hasn't God, God been gracious at this point in the garden, giving Adam and Eve more and more things as they were being, as they were being brought along? That's exactly what the story up to this point suggests, that God knows good and evil and will provide the good in his time. That's why God says it is not good for man to be alone. God knows good and evil, right? And so he makes the woman for the man. God continuously pours out his grace, bringing the man and the woman to maturity and completeness, preparing them for an end, and the serpent appeals to her sense of discontentment. What God has given you is not enough. And sets her thinking in opposition to God's provision what God has given was not good enough. That was the heart of the temptation. It all boiled down to an appeal to discontentment. And I think that at the heart of every sin is at some level discontentment with God first and foremost. It leads to the questioning of God's authority but at at the base it's discontentment. And that should give you a new appreciation for Paul's statement. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Paul understood that. Or how about James? What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires? The battle within you, you want something but don't get it? So the very first temptation, all that follow it, was based on appeal to discontentment. What God has given is not good enough. And there's another thing here in verse 4 and 5 that we have to point out along the way too. Notice that the serpent made a promise that was already true. The serpent promised Eve something that was already true. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. But they were already like God. The serpent's promising something that's already true. They were created in the image of God from the very beginning. As we know from Genesis 1, God created them in the image of God, male and female. You'll see why that's important also a little later. Verse 6, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, And also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Notice the order again. It was good for food. Food is at the center of this temptation. It was pleasing to the eyes, sight, and it was desirable for gaining wisdom. Because that's what God made it for. Up until this point in the account, God was the one who determined what was good and evil. But now we have the first time where the woman took that prerogative upon herself. She determined that it was good for food. And now what God had been determining good and evil in the account, now the woman decides to make a decision about what is good and what is not. And so she ate and then she gave some to her husband who was where? He was standing there with her the whole time. And so this was not just a failure on the part of the woman. It was a failure on the part of Adam. As well, We might say this is a joint failure. And think about the context of of the creation of Adam and Eve. Adam was made outside the garden where there were many wild and dangerous things. Remember, God made the man first and then he planted a garden and then he brought the man and he put him in the garden. Eve was made in the lush safety and security of the garden. And so given this context, given the situation, whose responsibility was it to handle a dangerous intruder? Eve started out good, but the serpent continued to attack. And what did Adam do? Nothing. He stood there and watched. He checked out. He did not fulfill the role of protector and provider that God had made for him to play by forming him in the wilderness. He checked out and as a result made his household vulnerable to destruction. So the when you look at this failure here, realize that this was a failure of the man as much as it was a failure of the woman. And we have good reason to say that because at the end of Genesis 2, the two become one. They are one body. And so the failure of the woman is by definition the failure of the man. They are one flesh. The woman's failure was also the failure of manhood on the part of Adam. And so he followed his wife into sin as if he were a woman just like her. That's really the impression that this gives. She falls into sin and he follows her just like a woman. It was a failure of manhood. And it's here that we begin to see the pattern of temptation which becomes prominent later in the Bible. As we saw last time, I made a big deal about how Adam and Eve are have a correlation to Christ and the church. And, and, and the New Testament makes this very clear with Paul in Ephesians 5. And Jesus calls himself the bridegroom in his, in his, in his ministry. And the Revelation talks all about the bridegroom and the bride. So... There's nothing new here. But just as there is a correlation between the making of Eve from the side of Adam during Adam's deep sleep and the making of the church from the side of Christ during Christ's death on the cross, so there is a correlation between the bridegroom and the bride facing another temptation in the New Testament. Now turn to Luke 4. And as I go to this, I'm going to point out that this is the temptation of Jesus Christ, the last Adam. And it's first. We have the temptation in the New Testament of the last Adam first, and then we have the temptation of the woman, the bride, later. And so the order is reversed from what we see back in Genesis chapter 3. Now, keep Genesis 3 in mind as we read Luke 4, beginning verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the desert. They were tempted. In a garden, Jesus is tempted in a desert where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days and at the end of them he was hungry. So Adam and Eve were tempted when they had access to all the food and Jesus is tempted when he hadn't eaten for 40 days when he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Temptation is about food, isn't it? The temptation in the garden was about the fruit of the tree. This temptation was about the fruit of the field, bread from wheat. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. What kind of life is Jesus talking about there? He's talking about spiritual life. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor for it has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, It will all be yours. It's about the eyes. So we began with, in the garden, we began with good food, pleasing to the eyes, and now we have Jesus being shown in an instant from his eyes all the kingdoms of the world. But what the devil is saying here is already true, right? Jesus was already the Son of God, and all of these kingdoms were his inheritance. And so what Satan is really tempting him here with is the same thing that the serpent tempted Eve with, a shortcut. God was going to give all the nations to His Son. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. The devil led Him to Jerusalem and had Him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, He said, throw yourself down for here, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. What's the sur- what, is this? what is the devil saying? You will not surely die. Is that true? Did the angels come and protect Jesus before the crucifixion? He had to die. And not just biological death. He had to die. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The ultimate death. Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And so what Eve does in the garden by putting the Lord's Word through her husband to the test, Jesus answers, do not put the Lord, your God, to the test. And when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. You see all the parallels here with the temptation of Jesus Christ right out of Genesis chapter 3? In fact, it's interesting because if you go on to Luke 4, go on to Luke 4 verse 31, we see that it's not until after the temptation in the wilderness, that Jesus has given authority over the demons. Verse 31 says, Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath began to teach the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. In a synagogue there was a man possessed by a demon, an evil spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Ha, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. And then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, What is this teaching? With authority and power he gives orders to evil spirits and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. And it goes on to talk about him healing people as a sign of the ministry later in Luke 4. But I don't think there's any coincidence here that Christ faced temptation first and then was given authority and power over both demons and the creation as a gift of God at that point because He resisted temptation. Yeah, what about the temptation of the bride? The new bride, the new Eve. Revelation chapter 12. She knew her husband had resisted temptation. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. It's actually another connection back to Genesis 3. We haven't gotten to the point about the pain in childbirth, but that's a connection right there. And then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon, a serpent, with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. That sounds really weird, but really what's being said there is that it's a perfect beast. Seven is the perfect number. This is the dragon with seven heads, the consummate dragon. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that she might, he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And in Greek it literally says, who is about to rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to His throne, the woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. Now skipping down to verse 13. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and a half a time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with a torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So here we have another connection to Genesis 3 as another woman faces another serpent, another dragon. But what does this woman do? Does she talk to the serpent? Does she listen to the serpent? No, she flees. She flees from the serpent who actually ends up going after and attacking her offspring, those who keep the commandments of God. So we have the temptation of the bridegroom and the bride in the right order coming full circle in the New Testament, reversing the order of the fall we have back in Genesis 3. And... What I want to present here now is a little bit different because what I believe is that what Christ and His bride did in the first century is the model for how we should handle the temptation to sin and break faith with God. Even within the model of Genesis 3, we find very instructive things. Genesis 3 shows us the dangerous mistakes which will lead to failure, discontentment, toying with sin, immaturity in the face of dangerous circumstances, and Genesis 3 even shows us the outcome of the failure. As we'll see later in Genesis 3, when the man and the woman failed, God gave the creation in the symbol of thorns and thistles and the, and the increase of pain in childbirth, dominion over the man and the woman. The opposite of what we see with Jesus. when he persevered, When Jesus persevered and when the church resisted temptation, they were both given, Jesus Christ himself and the church, Dominion over not only the entire world, but demons and the powers of evil as well. And so what I'm saying is that this is the archetype. This is the pattern for all of Christian living. We are called to be like Christ and resist temptation, and this shows us how. What happened to them also happens to us. This is the universal expectation of the Bible. You can see it in James chapter 1. And let's go to James chapter 1. The last connection that I'll go to this morning. James says in verse 12 of chapter 1, Blessed is the man who perseveres in a trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, think back to the garden. No one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. See the pattern? comes right out of Genesis chapter 3. And then James says, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. And that's what the woman was. She was deceived. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Have faith in God. That's what James says. Every good gift. And so if James is talking about this as part of the gospel, then we have another evidence that the gospel is preached in the garden. James is using the same pattern. And I don't think anybody would deny, other than some older theologians like Luther, that James is part of the gospel. So all these things are instructive. All these things are remarkable in the way they teach God's people how to live their lives in God's world. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you, Lord, for what you've done for us. We thank you for the beautiful weather that you've blessed us with, the time of fellowship and friendship. We pray that you bless the fellowship today around the table. We thank you and praise you for the strength that you've given to us. Teach us wisdom to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves in the kingdom work that you've provided for us in our hands. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.